0: Will Bret- Britain face uh, a new winter of discontent? It was one of the uh, headlines on the broadsheets this week. Um, but the media has been littered, hasn't it, over the last uh, few weeks and months with articles and reports highlighting that this wonderful country in which we live is, at this present time, facing a really low ebb. Uh, the, the rioting of the summer, you know, the, the increased prevalence of binge drinking and uh, antisocial behaviour and, and drug use. Uh, there is a dark shadow of discontent, it seems, looming over vast swathes of the population. There was also very sad news last Sunday morning, wasn't it? At seven o'clock, uh, Gary Speed, MBE, uh, the, the international footballer of Wales and then the manager of Wales, uh, seemingly a, a lovely guy, uh, was found hung in his in his house and commit, committed suicide. It seems this dark shadow can even overwhelm the most wealthy, uh, the most successful, the most acclaimed in our society. I suppose as you move later on in this week, we've uh, we've seen the press being focused more on the discontent of the public sector as they've been on strike um, over pension contributions and pay freezing. And many have asked, why? Why such discontent with that particular aspect alone, because, you know, the money seems, well, it's okay, Uh, you know, and the pensions, comparing to the private sector, they're, they're pretty generous, and I'm someone who's worked in that sector as well. One reporter put it like this, he says, it is painful to see with the strikes now, these are essentially public sector workers who have been sold a dream, that they'll be able to retire at a certain age or live a way of life enjoyed by their predecessors, that is looking increasingly unlikely, if not impossible. Do you hear that? Sold a dream, though increasingly unlikely, if not impossible. And as a result, there is discontent, isn't there? To be content, by definition, is to desire no more than one has. It's to be satisfied in the circumstances that you you find yourself in. And whether it's the striking of the last week, it's the... The rioting, the antisocial behaviour, the drug use, all of these things are at workings of a discontent that is, well, it's pretty much viral in our country right now. People desire more than they have. They are not satisfied. Let's look at discontent to begin with, our our first point. We're going to look at Genesis 3 in a moment, but maybe turn your um, Bibles back there and we'll We'll cast our eyes down in a few a few minutes. Discontentment, <clears throat> let's think about it for a moment though. It usually breeds itself through the circumstances our li- in our lives, doesn't it? Usually in a kind of lack of fulfillment in any area that can make us feel a little bit hard done by to begin with. A poor relationship. Maybe a difficult job. Our finances being stretched. Uh, you know, poor low self-esteem. These, all these things can lead to Discontentment. We want more than we have, and we think, don't we, that we'll be truly satisfied if we get the object of our desires. And this is, of course, I suppose, most acutely felt within our relationships. We've been sold that dream, haven't we? As we watch the television, as we listen to the songs in the charts, as we you know, read the magazines, and so on. We've been sold a dream. But as time marches on, that dream is looking increasingly unlikely. And that has become a breeding ground for discontent. And it's not the exclusive domain, of the single either. For whatever circumstances you find yourself in, what you have hoped for in those circumstances can in reality very often disappoint. The marriage can be loveless, without a spark. The children, they can can let you down and not fulfill their potential. The relationship that you are in, perhaps, can lack commitment. You find out you're going out with a boy rather than a man. And it makes you feel, perhaps, used, disillusioned. Even friends can let you down, can't they? Even family can disown you. The reality of relationships is that so often what we've expected in our dreams can soon be crushed by the reality of life. And it's been like that right from the beginning. That's why we're going to look back very briefly at Genesis 3 to the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve. You see, in Genesis 3, they've got everything. Uh, they're living this dream. With God, in in perfect relationship, they lived in perfection, both in terms of provision from God, but also in the beauty of their surroundings as well. (coughs) However, what we see in Genesis 3 is that they decide to not believe God, and to not trust him. That his provision for them was not perfect, was not good. Rather, what we see is Eve listening to another voice. And that caused her to doubt that God was good. Choosing not to believe that God had her best interests at heart. And Eve and then later Adam, they believed that God was depriving them of of something that they thought was then desirable. It began with that that pretty haunting question, didn't it, in verse 1. Did God really say? I mean, everywhere we look around us in that culture, uh, we are told that in order to be fulfilled, we must have that kind of, or be pursuing and cultivating a, a relationship for our own fulfilment. And we so easily fall into the trap of, of feeling that we, miss, we are missing out. That God must not love us if we're not in some spine-tingling kind of killer romance where we feel like we're dancing on the clouds the whole time. Adam and Eve, when they listened to God, when they trusted His word, they were content. And you get to the end of chapter 2, and there was no shame. There was just perfect delight in their relationship together and with God. But everything changed. Everything changed when they chose to listen to the other voice the voice that was contrary to God's word. Genesis 3, of course, it's the voice of the serpent that they listen to. They trust his word, not God's. Of course, the serpent is later confirmed in Revelation 20, and, uh, t- sorry, re- yeah, Revelation 20, verse 2, and other places as well, that the serpent is the devil. But it's not the only voice that we hear, is it? So often we choose to listen to ourselves and those inclinations that we all know and feel in our hearts. And we end up saying very similar to, to Genesis three, one. Did God really say that? For me, we begin to doubt God's goodness and begin to doubt that we should trust his word. Of course, that question is fed by what we read, by what we listen to, uh, by our friends uh, around us and the culture around us. It becomes very easy to believe that we are incomplete in life without the circumstances of our relationships being perfectly fulfilling satisfying us as our dreams desire. And we ask, don't we, did God really say? When we doubt God's word, when we incline our ears to the words of another, when we say something like this to God, I don't believe in this realm of my life that you actually have my best interests at heart. Well, that is when discontentment begins to breed in us, doesn't it? Jeremiah Burroughs, in his famous book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, in 1648, said this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. What he's pointing out there and what is obvious within Genesis 3 is that, if you like, discontentment, the underlying issue of it is unbelief. It is not submitting to God's wise and fatherly disposal, as Burroughs puts it. It is saying to God, I don't trust you. I don't trust that you are sovereign, that is in control of all things. And I don't trust you that you are good and have good purposes for my life. And you end up saying, did God really say? Now, If you feel like that about parts of your life, if you question God's good and perfect plan for your life, then then what can you do? Discontentment in the world around us. What, What do people do around us? It is usually just appeased, isn't it, discontentment? Uh, There can be kind of momentary covers for discontentment. So rioting and looting, it certainly helped vent frustration, didn't it, for those discontent in our society? I doubt it's a long-term solution for many, but it was certainly helpful for some, so they felt at the time. And that's why people turn to things like drink, and they turn to drugs, and they turn to pornography, and... Even shopping for some nice pair of heels, whatever is your thing. Many of people I'm going to school with, you know, meet the boys. Their thing, maybe not like that, but it's. I need to. I need to build the extension to the house. I need to get the next car. It will. It will just cover over that little bit of discontentment in my life. They're they're looking for a moment of ecstasy, but it's not the answer. It is just a mere momentary cover of an underlying discontent. You'll even find yourself doing things that in the light of day you really truly hate. But for that mere mo- that moment in the dark, you'll find delight. Mm-hmm. You'll find intimacy. You'll find a glimmer of contentment, won't you? I was reading this article this week, um... Looking at why, uh, for example, why pornography uh, is so often a solution for so many who feel discontent with the circumstances of their lives. Especially in their relationships. Uh, I I thought this was a poignant kind of uh, reminder why so many people do turn to porn. It says this, for one moment people are transported to a place that feels to them like heaven. The images they choose vary, but, but all porn acts are, are seeking the same thing. They hope to find in fantasy and sexual gratification that which their soul secret um, soul, sorry that which their soul secretly aches for, but cannot find in the world of real relationships. That is ecstasy and intimacy. These are the two basic things that pornography promises. Of course, it is a lie. At the end of his or her experience the the addict is left only with a deepened sense of shame, isolation, guilt and emptiness. The cycle of their addiction is reinforced but just for a moment it felt real. Just a moment. But is that enough? It, It covers it for a while. The underlying discontent of our lives but you're then looking for the next moment and then the next moment of contentment and release. The writer goes on pointed to say this, the heart was made for an ecstatic, intimate experience of God and porn is just a way of coping with the incessant cravings of an unsatisfied heart. Friends, I know, I've actually written, I guess, but I do know that this is an issue for many if statistics are real both for men and women, but what lies beneath is that incessant craving of an unsatisfied heart. Now maybe porn isn't the issue for for some here, maybe it's found in, your release is found in finding more power, finding more money, finding more prestige, finding more authority. But all is momentary in comparison to that which Burroughs said, sweet inward quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So what can we do? Many try to find contentment outside. They they purchase things, they experience things. People look outside of themselves for something that will make them feel satisfied. And I guess we all do it to differing degrees with different objects, different aspects of our lives. But can true lasting contentment be found that way? Or is it just a momentary cover? <coughs> uh, a brief glimmer of light under a shadow of a very dark cloud? Contentment is perhaps most acutely felt in the circumstances of our relationships or lack of them. And I guess many of us in all different circumstances long for that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious, frame of spirit freely submitting to God's word as Adam and Eve did at the beginning, but didn't as they begin to question his goodness. Let's see how we can uh, know that then. But not only know it, feel it, experience it, and enjoy contentment. So let's turn, if you flip over to Philippians 4, we're going to look much more um, at the text here, both in Philippians 3 and 4. So in the culture in which we live, both contentment and discontentment are, are believed to be responses to the circumstances of our lives. If you're content, it's because things are going all right. They're pleasant, they're enjoyable at the time. They are as you imagine and as you dreamt. And whether you are content or discontent, both are determined by the exterior factors of our lives. So if your job is going well, you're content in your work, aren't you? You know, if you, if you manage to, you're, you're going out with a girl or boy and, and, and things are going well. Uh, or your marriage is going along quite happily. Yeah, you're, you're content in your relationships. The circumstances, those exterior things, determine whether you are content or discontent. But what happens when you lose your job? What happens when, you know... The, the relationship that you're in that used to give you so much contentment just fizzles away. If you've been in a relationship and been dependent on that relationship for your contentment, for your purpose in life, you will have almost certainly crushed the other person in that relationship with expectations that they cannot possibly hope to fulfil. What you've done is maintain the fantasy from the world around us that if Uh, you find that kind of true soulmate. Everything in your life would be right and good and purposed. Keller points out this in his brilliant um, counterfeit gods uh, in, in the chapter about love. He says this, no lover, no human being is qualified for that role. No one can live up to that. And the inevitable result is bitter disillusionment, discontentment. That that sweet, inward, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God, that peace and contentment is not found or should be dependent upon the circumstances of our life. Our relationship is too heavy a burden for anyone to carry. So that is why we're going to turn to the example of Paul in Philippians 4. One commentator described what we read here from verse 10 is that Paul's unshakable. Contentment. Just follow with me from verse ten, if you can, through to verse thirteen. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in wants. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Firstly note, please, that Paul finds his contentment, that unshakable contentment. But he does it by learning. I learned, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. True contentment, that unshakable Christian contentment is not determined by the circumstances in which we find ourselves. It is learned. How do we do that? Well, I think Paul gives us a good example of it back in chapter three. So if you just flip back um, to verse seven onwards of chapter three, just on the, the opposite page there. Look what Paul does. Firstly, what he does is he begins to consider. It's an act of learning. He considers in both verses 7 and 11, but what does he consider? And, and what does he learn as he considers? Look at what it says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider, I learn everything a loss. Um, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That I may gain Christ. You see what Paul is doing there? He is willing to believe God's word, And, and whatever was to his profit. In his, in his life before. That is his wealth. His status. His power. And great power. His great authority. All now in his mind is considered as nothing. It is utterly worthless. It's rubbish. In comparison to knowing Christ. And Christ alone. And that is why in verse 9 he remembers the truth of the gospel of Christ. He learns it, recalls it in his mind, that he is found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the Lord, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from faith, sorry, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It's that that brilliant swap of the gospel. Jesus' perfect life. Counted to Paul here and to us if we put our faith in him. And our sinful lives are punished on Jesus on the cross. He is learning, recalling, considering these great gospel truths. You see, contentment is not a magic pill you can take in in some circumstance or relationship you, you find yourself in. It requires discipline of your heart and your mind to consider To remember and recall the gospel truths that you know that God is the sovereign one and he has wonderfully offered us salvation in Christ Jesus. So rather than saying did God really say and feeling hard done by, as you consider the gospel in whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you begin to say to yourself God really did. You know the objective and you cling to it, God really did. Save me in Jesus Christ and has given me a wonderful life to be content in Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul can say in verse 10, I want to know Christ and, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing what? In his sufferings? Becoming like him in his death. See, Paul learns contentment here and finds it in the truth of the gospel. But notice he doesn't kind of playfully consider, playfully learn, a kind of partial contentment in the gospel. He considers what? Everything loss. Everything. That is, he doesn't c- kind of compartmentalise his life, thinking some fulfilment can be found in his wealth, in his power, in his authority, his status. They're loss. Before God, he has no confidence in any of those things. And therefore, what he's doing, is basically demoting them in his heart and his mind. And he's promoting the gospel in his heart and his mind. To have the dominant position, the driving force, the thing that gives him the contentment that he needs in life. And essentially what he is doing is he's expelling from his heart anything that takes his desires and trust away from God. I've mentioned the sermon before, but Thomas Chalmers, in a very famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection... In the early 1800s, he preached a sermon in Edinburgh. Do, do look it up on the internet if you like. He put it this way. He said, it must be by substituting another desire and another line or habit or exertion in its place. And the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object is not by turning it away upon desolate and unpeopled vacancies. It's not by just sort of saying, I'm going to stop thinking that way or stop doing that thing. He says, it is by presenting to its regards another object, more alluring. And basically saying, if you want to rid yourself from an unhelpful habit or mindset, that discontentment, that dark cloud, you can try and suppress it. Buy yourself a nice pair of heels. You can try and ignore it. Think about something else. You can try and cover it up with whatever you do in your life. But it will not last. You have to replace it, he says. And if you're discontent, you can try and cover it up, suppress it, ignore it. But the only lasting and true way to find contentment is to replace your dependence on your circumstances, your relationships, or whatever it may be, and place your trust fully and completely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is the place, the only place, where true lasting eternal contentment can be found contentment is learned and whatever you have and whatever you have sought contentment in before that needs to be replaced it needs to be considered rubbish because only in Christ can contentment be found both now Whenever our circumstances, whatever our circumstances, whether that's rich and poor, like Paul mentions in chapter 4, or you know, single or married in a relationship situation, but also in the future. True contentment, you see, unshakable contentment, never takes its eye off that future eternal resurrection glory. And look at Paul's desire in chapter 3 verse 10. What he wants to learn is Christ, the power of his resurrection, to be with God for eternity. You see, contentment is, is learned in the gospel of Christ. It gives sweet joy to the present, whatever circumstances we face. And glorious resurrection hope for the future. Once we begin to find contentment in Christ, we can begin to do what Paul does as, as he does in chapter 4, verse 13. Just look, look through there. He says, now, content, learning to be content, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. What Paul is doing there is he said, I have applied what I know to be true in the gospel and I'm going to apply it to the circumstances of my life. And it's going to give me strength to face whatever life throws at me and be content in that. It is key, you see, to contentment, to apply what we know of God to our circumstances. We may not feel like that sometimes. We may not even want to apply what we know of God, the truths of the gospel, to our lives. Even, you know, for example, when, you, when you've remained single for a long time and you, you feel you're stuck in a different, difficult relationship, that kind of thing, married or not. Those are the moments where we really need to the most. Apply what we know to be true of God, his sovereignty, his faithfulness and his kindness. Ultimately in Christ, and look how Paul does it brilliantly in chapter four, verse four. As we close, verse uh, yeah, chapter four, verse four. Now you must remember, this is a Philippians is one of his letters. He's writing in chains. You remember that back in chapter one, verse fourteen, he's in prison. That's not a kind of nice prison with sky TV like we have them in these days. You know, we're talking prison. He's probably been beaten very very lonely probably very hungry no food was supplied in prisons of those days Paul applies what he knows of God and responds saying look what he says verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always and again I will say it again rejoice the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke of this showing the importance of speaking truth to ourselves that is you know when you're finding yourself that you're a real low ebb that's the very moment you need to speak words of truth to yourself, remind yourself of who God is and the reasons that we have to rejoice in him. So Martin Luther Jones said this, to rejoice is a command, yes, but there is all the difference in the world between rejoicing and being made happy. You cannot make yourself happy, but you can make yourself rejoice. In a sense that you will always rejoice in the Lord, Happiness is something from within ourselves. Rejoicing is in the Lord. You do it as you remind yourself of how good and kind he's been in Christ. See, Paul's circumstances were painful, they were lonely, they were hard. Yet his joy in Christ is so apparent because he had learned to be content. He had an unshakable contentment. And that can only be found through the discipline and learning that God needs to be the greatest affection of our hearts. That God must be the preeminent focus of our minds. And please note that Paul did not merely rejoice in and be content and trust in Christ. He also lived for Christ. And those two must go together. It is a very dangerous place to be in and I see it all too often. When you change the priorities of the way that you live without changing the affections and the desires of your heart. And I can kind of warn you very graciously: don't live that double life of appearing to be a Christian, coming along to group, saying all the right things, walking in on Sunday, being great, attender at church, and all that kind of thing, doing all the right things in public, but inside you have no desire, and you find no contentment in Christ, in Christ alone. You seek your contentment elsewhere. That life, if you choose to live it, only gets more and more intolerable. And it usually defaults as the person finds themselves going toward the affection that is strongest in their heart, usually away from God. Let me finish with an observation. I found it very moving, probably because I, I like sport. And, you know, I've, I was very fond of Gary Speed. He was a great player, a bit of a workhorse in the centre of the park. You know, good man in the air, that's pretty rare in English football. But um, that's enough about football, isn't it? Let me get get to the point. Um, There was a wonderful eulogy from Eddie Butler and um, and BBC. They put about three minutes together. And during that, um, they showed scenes from Newcastle United, where Gary Speed played for a number of years in the Premier League. Um, He was a very much loved player up there number of his teammates, so there was very moving scenes as they were crying on the pitch and there was a minute's applause to recognise uh, all he had done. As the camera panned round that stadium and all these people were clapping, there was one flag, one flag that really drew my attention. He was a Welshman. it was a Welsh flag. And on the corner of the flag it simply said this, God only takes... See when we find that the circumstances of our lives especially in our relationships are not as we thought they would be where there is sadness and disappointment in our lives we can all too often make that assumption, can't we? That God only takes He takes away from me He's a spoil sport He doesn't want that pleasure for me From our position At points in our lives we are unable to see God's unfolding plan and priority for our lives. So it is those moments in our lives that we must learn to rejoice. And critically, as Paul writes to the church in Philippi, we must share in each other's troubles as he does in chapter 4 verse 14. No one should ever be alone in the church. But we must never assume that God only takes... Yes, he might take. He might take all the comforts that you know and love. He might take away the relationship that you place all your purpose and contentment in. He might take away from your financial security. He might take away from your safety of being a Christian in this country. But he will never, ever take away his greatest purpose for your life. And that is for you to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That is his ultimate purpose for you and I. God's priority for you and me and for our children, if we have children here, is our holiness to become more like Christ. It is not your popularity, it's not your wealth, it's not your academic success or even your happiness or your relationship status. Therefore, this is why Paul says what he does in chapter 4, verse 4. He rejoices in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is coming. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, your longings. And the contentment or peace of God, which transcends all the understanding that you have, will, it will, guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I've probably said enough. I'm going to stop there. We, um, I said last week um, there would be a chance to have, um, ask a few questions. Uh, maybe just for a moment, why don't we turn to the person beside you? Maybe just turn. What's the main thing that you've been struck as you've looked at Paul's example and finding contentment in all these circumstances? What's the main thing that you've perhaps learned and need to take away today? Uh, and then, if there's any points of clarification, do feel free to ask. Why don't we just take two minutes to ask the person beside us? <coughs>